Exodus 20:12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Ephesians 5:15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will or what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, would you take this portion of your word, would you sink it into our hearts, and would you change us by it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill told me that his father had abandoned his family when he was very, very little. And when he was three, his mother just couldn't handle him. And so she handed him over to the state. He's explaining all this to me with a lot of emotion, even while the waitress came to ask him if he wanted some more coffee. His life consisted of going from foster home to foster home, and he struggled. He was angry. He was confused. He felt rejected. You see, he was 12 years old, And he had the mental capacity of a four-year-old. And he had a problem. He was different than all the other kids because even until he was 12 years old, every night, every night he wet his bed. And his foster parents wanted to work on him to try to help use a little reverse psychology to help him learn not to wet his bed. I mean, for crying out loud, he's 12. And so they decided that it would be helpful to to young Bill if they reminded him how inappropriate it is that you wet your bed when you're 12. And so one morning they put him out in the hallway for all the kids to see. They put a sign around his neck that said, my name is Bill, I am 12, and I still wet my bed. Some of us can hear stories like Bill and we think about uh, experiences that we've had in our own life about how... um, Those that are put in charge over us as young children did things, maybe they meant it for good, maybe they didn't, that uh, we can remember in very vivid detail even today. Uh, I don't know what your parents were like, um, but I do know this. Some of you did not have very good parents. So when you read the fifth commandment, and it says, honor your father and mother. How do I do that? How does Bill honor his father and his mother, his foster father and foster mother, when they put a sign around his neck that said, my name is Bill and I wet my bed? How do you honor your father when he's abused you physically, maybe sexually, Emotionally? How do you honor your father and mother? 
Listen, some of us can't relate to that at all because we had great parents. And some of us need to know how we are to honor our parents as our parents get older, right? So if you had parents who you feel like were the devil incarnate, or if you had parents that were tremendous, both of us are called to obey this text. The question is, how do you do it? Hmm? So we're going to look together at Ephesians chapter 6, because this is the place where Paul interprets what we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. If we are going to know how do we do that whenever we had very difficult childhoods, or if our parents are getting older and we're no longer in their house anymore, but we still want to honor them, how do we do that? Well, let's look and see what Paul has to say about it. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to ask and answer three questions. How does Paul interpret the fifth commandment in Ephesians chapter 6? What, therefore, does that mean for those of us with nice parents? And what, therefore, does that mean for those of us who had abusive parents? Are you ready? Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to move fast. Please have the text open before you and look at it with me. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, is an application that arises out of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Lance read it earlier. He says in 5.18, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what does that look like? And then Paul gives you a series of relationships called the household code. Starts with the husband and wife. What's that relationship like? What's the relationship like between children and parents, which is where we're going to dive in? And then later in Ephesians, he says, what is the relationship like with slaves and their masters? And when he gets to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So let's look at the command together. Paul directly addresses children. He uses the Greek word technon, not a more common word huios, which means son. The word technon is a more specific, more intimate word for child. Paul is directly speaking to the Ephesian children. Now, we don't know the age of these kids, but we know that whoever is reading this text before the, the church in Ephesus is directly talking to children as they're reading this aloud to the congregation. And so the children, while they may not be teenagers, they certainly aren't infants because they're able to comprehend. He says, Technon, children, listen up. He tells them to obey, hupakuo, which is the same word that he uses earlier for submit. In 1 Peter chapter 3, for example, he uses that word when he's talking about Sarah when she was obeying her husband Abraham. It's the same word to submit. The word hupakuo, are you ready for this? It's translated obey. Do you want to know what it means in English? Here's what it means. Obey. <laughs> it means to do the command that you've been given. Obey the command. It's in the present progressive imperative, which means that it means, it means that it means, keep on obeying. Continue to obey just as you've done. And while Paul goes on to speak directly to fathers in verse 4, he's speaking of children to obey both parents in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Now, the prepositional phrase you see in verse 1, lower your eyes to the text. You see it says, obey your parents in the Lord. Now hear me, this is very important. 
Some people have received counsel that, listen, you should obey your parents only if they are in the Lord. But that is not actually what Paul is saying here. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. And the only reason we know that's not what he's saying is because in a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, children, almost the exact same phrase, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Listen, there is, there is no condition upon the faith of the mom and dad here. He is not mincing words. You are to obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Now, Ephesians 6.1, to obey your parents in the Lord, refers not to the limits of obedience, not just parents who are Christians, but to the spirit of obedience. You are to obey your mom and dad. Kids, you are to obey your mom and dad. Older children, if you have parents, you are to obey your mom and dad as though you were obeying the Lord himself. Now, in the Lord also lets you off the hook, doesn't it? Because that phrase also means, if it means you should obey your parents as though you're obeying the Lord, it also means that if your parents are ever asking you to do something that the Lord would not approve of, you have permission to not obey them. Because the Lord would never ask you to sin, would he? He would never ask you to be victimized. He would never ask you to break the civil laws. So, I want to be very, very careful here. If children, if your parents are asking you to do something that is wrong in the eyes of God, if you are being physically or sexually or emotionally abused, it is wrong in the eyes of God, or they're asking you to break the civil law, which is also wrong, in the eyes of God. Paul gives us permission to disobey your parents. Now that's easy for you to say, Blake, you have no idea what my dad is like. You have no idea. And I know your heart is pounding. And I know this is making you a little nervous. But I want you to take the back of your bulletin. On the very last page of your bulletin, on page 16, do you see that? There are, there are a list of names, and there are four names that are listed first, and they are called your elders. And boys and girls, I want you to look at me. If you are ever asked, or you think that you are being treated in a way that would not honor Jesus, you have my permission to call any one of those four names on the back of that bulletin. In fact, I hope you will. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. It doesn't matter where you are. Children, we have vowed as your elders to protect you and to love you well. And if you're scared, and you just, even if you just want to talk, you are welcome to pick up your phone and call any of those four numbers. Do you hear me? We love you, and we are with you. Please circle those numbers and keep them close. Now, back to Ephesians chapter 6. 
He tells us the command, and then he gives us the reason. Paul says that we are to obey our parents, for this is right. Now, that kind of sounds a little narrow, doesn't it? But back in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, But all sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is right or proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which is not right or is unfit or out of place. Same Greek word. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. The Greek word there is the, the antonym of it is right. Antonym just means opposite. So Paul picks up this idea of what is proper early in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And he then says, now when it comes to obeying your parents, I've told you it is not proper. Do you want to know what is proper? Is obeying your mom and dad. That's right. And when he says it's right, he means that it is the proper and right thing to do as those who are trying to live out the fruit of the Christian life. You want to bear fruit for God? It means to obey your mom and dad. I know that that's much harder, much harder than it, uh, it is to do. Um, it's much harder to do it than it is um, to say it. I know that, kids. I know it. But it is what the Lord commands us to do. Now, what's the motivation? The command is to obey your parents in the Lord. He gives you the reason because it's proper and it's right. Now, what's the motivation for us? Verse 2, it says to honor your father and mother. Paul takes us back to Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. To honor means to esteem them as precious and as unique, worthy of all and worthy of our respect. And Paul quotes the fifth commandment because God was teaching Israel about himself. And he says, just as you are to obey your mom and dad, so also you are to obey me. And Paul here is teaching the Ephesian children that in Ephesus, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Paul is saying that obedience to parents is a way to help you learn to obey God himself. Listen, Paul knew what it was like to tell children to obey their parents because in Greco-Roman culture, fathers had what's called patria potestas, which means absolute authority in their house. Absolute authority in their house. In fact, if their son became a magistrate, even though he may rule kingdoms and lands, do you know whose authority he is still under until the day he dies? His father's. Do you know that? He had absolute authority in the house. And so Paul knows that it was hard to be a child in the Greco-Roman society. And he knows that it's hard for us to be children in our society today, even with all the protections that we have from abusive or wayward dads. He knows what it was like. And yet he still says to honor them because honoring your parents is a way of helping you learn to honor the Lord. Leviticus 19 says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19.3 Every one of you shall revere his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. 
Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal, for I am the Lord your God. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. God is trying to teach Israel how to fear God, and he starts with having respect and awe and fear of mom and dad. So the command is clear, we should obey our parents. The reason is clear because it's fitting for one who calls himself a Christian. The motivation is because we are serving the Lord. It is our way of worshiping God, our Heavenly Father, by obeying our mom and dad here on earth. And the result, what is the result? The result is in verse 3 of chapter 6, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, Paul is directly quoting Exodus 20, 12 here, but he, he universalizes this promise. Paul is saying, in the Old Testament, it is true that you will live a long life in the land of Israel, but Paul here is saying that you will enjoy the pleasure of your heavenly Father forever, if indeed you are in Him. And one of the ways that you show Church of Ephesus, Trinity Church in Owasso, that you are in him is that you honor your father and your mother. You obey them. Now, that's what the command means. How do we live this out if we have great parents? There's a friend of mine in um, Florida who told me the story. If you've been through the new members class lately, then you've probably heard this story before. I tell it at every new members class now. There was a pastor who lived in Chicago whose son, he loved his son. He was a good dad to his son. But his son grew more and more distant from their family. He stopped coming to Thanksgiving meals. He stopped coming to Christmas. He just grew more and more distant. He was 18. He could do whatever he wanted. And the father wept over his son. And one day at 2 a.m. in the morning, this father, who was a pastor, got a phone call from the police, and they said, Reverend so-and-so, um, we have your son, and he's been arrested, and you need to come and pick him up. And so he gets in the car, and he drives to the precinct, and he steps in, and he gives them his son's name, and they said, sir, I'm sorry, we don't have your son here. He must have left. That didn't sound right to him. He knew that he'd gotten a call from the precinct. So he goes to the next precinct he can think of in the suburbs of Chicago. Doesn't see him. Doesn't find his son. Drives in the inner city of Chicago looking for his son at the central police station. I'm sorry, sir. Your son is not here. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. The father's starting to get extremely worried about his son. He goes to the other suburban police stations. He cannot find his son anywhere. And he knows that there's only one place that his son would go if his son left the station, where he would go. His only group of friends that he was running with was at a crack house. So he drives to this crack house, and he pulls up to the driveway, and he walks up to the door of this house, and no lights are on, and he opens the door, and he steps in, and he sees all of these people that are sleeping. There's probably, you know, maybe six, seven, eight people that are sleeping in the living room. And the father is looking for his son, and he sees that these body is on the floor. He's looking for his little boy. He doesn't see him anywhere. So he's stepping around these people, and he goes into the back room and opens the bedroom door. 
And there's this little boy asleep on the bed. And his father had rehearsed in his mind how disappointed he was with his son. He had this speech ready for his son. You're such a disappointment to our family. Like, we've given you everything. Everything. Like, I've sacrificed my life for you. I'd be willing to give up my job for you. We love you. I'm so disappointed. You've ruined your life. And when the father walked into this bedroom door, he saw his little boy on the bed um, sleeping. The dad was just overwhelmed with emotion. And he felt the tears went up in his eyes, and he got a knot in the back of his throat. And the only thing that the father could do to his son is he leaned down, and he kissed his little boy on the cheek. And he backs out of the bedroom, and he shuts the door, and he gets in his car, and he drives home. And a couple of months later, um, this wayward, disappointing sinner of a son starts hanging around the family again. And uh, one day, the father and the son are sitting out on the back porch, and the dad says, hey, you know, you've been hanging around here a little bit more. Um, what's up? And the son says, Dad, don't you know? And the dad goes, man, I don't know anything about you anymore. And he says, that night that um, you came to look for me, the police did not call you. My friends played a joke on you because they knew that you would never come look for me because you were so disappointed in me. And when we were at that house and we saw your lights shine through those windows, everybody hit the deck because we were scared of you. And when you walked back into the bedroom and you found me, I knew that you were going to just kick me. But you kissed me. And that's why I'm here. The kiss of the father. Some of you, friends, have fathers that love you more than you can ever imagine. And they have gone to great lengths to pray for you and to support you and to love you. And some of you need to respond to the kiss of your father. And you need to reconcile with your dad. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to forgive your father for the way he treated you. And I do not say that because it's easy. But I say it for this reason. That your heavenly father loves you. And he gives you, as wayward as your father might be, little glimpses of his grace through your earthly father, no matter how bad he may have been, and he may have been really bad. He gives you pictures of your true heavenly father who doesn't kick you because he's disappointed in you, but he comes to you in love, and he kisses you. Psalm 2 says, let us kiss the son, lest he be angry and he destroy you in his way. Your heavenly father comes to you and he embraces you in love. So those of us who had good fathers, what are we to do? What are we to do for our parents if we have good parents? Well, hey, here's a memo. Children, listen. Adult children, listen to me. 
When's the last time you hugged your mom and your dad and you just looked them in the eye and you said thank you? Not because it's Father's Day, not because it's Mother's Day, you just hugged them and you said thank you. Try someday just to think about all the sacrifices that your mom and dad have made and just think about them. Think about how much your parents love you and the sacrifices that they've made for you. And dare I be so bold as to say, write them a note. (laughs) Write them a letter, even if it just says, hey, listen, you may not even care, but I want you to know that I love you and I'm grateful for you. Try to do exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, to obey them. To see, to see the why, perhaps, of why they ask you to do that. Not just the what, but to trust them. That they have your best interest in mind. And so instead of kicking against the goads, that's a biblical metaphor for instead of always pushing back against them, why don't you just surprise them and say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'll do that. Tell them I love you. Pray for them. Because if there ever was an act of grace outside your salvation, it was being born into a Christian home. Do you know that? Now, some of us have great parents who have come after us and who have loved us well when we were wayward and they care for you and there are beautiful pictures of the gospel for us. Some of us haven't had such great parents. Jackie was 28 years old. She was a woman who grew up with an abusive household. As an adolescent, she was sexually molested by her dad. It was a bitter icing on a cake of a miserable relationship. And Jackie became a Christian through young life when she was in high school. And here's what she wrote. For years I felt that I could never know God my father because I had such a rotten relationship with my real father. I thought of God as being like my father, untrustworthy, demanding, merciless, unpredictable. And then I realized that my biggest problem was me, not God or my father. My belief system was all messed up. I was projecting lies onto God and not believing what was true about the God of Scripture. Now listen, some of you know where Jackie is. And there was a lie that a lot of us have swallowed, hook, line, and sinker, that we've received from Sigmund Freud and a lot of modern pop psychology, especially those of you who were schooled in psychology in college, you've begun to believe this. The lie goes like this. It is a lie. Let me finish before you disagree. If you had a horrible relationship with your earthly father, it will therefore necessarily affect your view of God. Now, that is actually a lie. It might affect your relationship with God the Father. But the truth of the matter is that your earthly father shows you some characteristic of God the heavenly father. If it wasn't for your father, you wouldn't be here. He was thinking about you before you were ever in existence. But there are situations, and some of you have parents like this, that God's holy, beautiful, loving character seems completely remote from the character of your earthly father. The analogy works one way. Your earthly father can point you to attributes of God, but God's beauty and holiness and infinite mercy may not show you a hill of beans about your earthly father. And you have to recognize that there 
those two relationships must be separated. And it takes time and hurt and tears to get those separated because you're like Jackie. You feel like those two things are so intertwined, it's very hard to separate them. But you've got to learn to develop to separate those things. So, Jackie, Jackie was making strides. She, she sought counseling. She had been complaining for a long time of a sense that God is remote, like my father. And in a nutshell, in a nutshell, over time of thinking through this with Jackie and counseling, my, a friend of mine tells me these are the steps that she experienced, that she took, and I'm just going to share them with you. Jackie first began as she began to process her relationship with her earthly father, and she saw the distinction between her heavenly father and her earthly father, she began to grasp the facts about her heavenly father and his love for her. She tended to see her life like this thrilling movie that she was the star of in the Bible, like in black and white, you know, bad sound, a horrible B film. She felt like her life, where she was the center of the action, it was all about her, all about her, all about her. She felt nothing. She just did not want to believe what Scripture said was true about God. But she began slowly to grasp the facts that what Scripture says of her father is true. Her heavenly father, that he loves her, that he's not angry with her, that he's not unpredictable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in the process, Jackie faced some sin that she had been avoiding. This is the hardest step in my experience as a pastor. Because people will say to me, you have no idea what my father has done. In fact, people have said, this is the hardest commandment I have to listen to because I have a horrible relationship with my dad. And Jackie came to see that some of the reason why she couldn't make progress in her relationship with Jesus is because there was sin in her life. There was sexual sin. There were sins of manipulating and avoiding people. There was laziness. There was a love of money that underlay Jackie's recurrent sense of God's remoteness. And dynamic psychology would just say, hey, we got to reparent Jackie. No, we, we need to let Jackie's true heavenly father be her parent. And we need to help her grasp the facts and we need to help her come to grips with her sin And thirdly, Jackie, in this situation, Jackie began to find some good role models and some good friends. She began to find some fathers in her life that were actually good role models for her to help her better understand her heavenly father and his care and his love for her. And it's no surprise that relationships inside the church where she could trust and she could learn to obey God Rather than continuing to read God of her own experience, she was able to allow God to shape her experience and to lean into friends to help her realize and learn that God can be trusted and that he is good. Listen, it is, um, it is not easy to obey your parents, to honor them in the Lord when they have treated you so badly. And Bill, remember Bill at the beginning of the sermon, when, when Bill was 12, he was put in the middle of a catalog of faces for adopted children. And there were 500 in this book, and Robert and Judy Lexington were flipping through them. And they came to the picture of Bill, and they said, we want him. And the social worker said, no, no, are you sure you want Bill? You want Bill? And they said, oh, we, that's who we want. We want to adopt Bill. 
And so the day came for him to be introduced to his new parents, Robert and Judy Lexington. And Bill met his new mother. He didn't know who she was from Eve. And Bill is standing there with his little brown bag of belongings. And Judy runs up to her little boy, Bill. And she grabs and pulls him into her body and suffocates him with this hug that he'll never forget. He said, I had a hard time breathing. She was hugging me so hard. And they put him in the car with his little brown bag, and they went to a restaurant, first restaurant he'd ever been to in his life. He was so nervous, but he wanted to impress his new parents. He didn't know if they were foster parents or real parents. He didn't know the difference. He was just being passed off again. And so he's sitting there, and they go to a spaghetti place, and he's eating spaghetti. And by the end of the meal, although Robert is in this nice, clean, iron shirt, he has managed to mow both of them down with spaghetti sauce by the end of the meal, trying to impress them, making a huge mess. And he starts to shake toward the end of the meal. And Robert sees his son shaking, and he says, Billy, hey, Billy, listen. And he reaches down beneath the table, And he pulls out a replica of a boat that he had just built. And he hands them this little toy boat that looks just like the real boat that he has. And he says to his son, Billy, I want you to be my co-captain. Would you like that? And and Billy says with spaghetti sauce all over his face, yes, sir. That night they go to their home and Billy sleeps in a room for the first time by himself with no other children. And Like clockwork, what does he do about 3 a.m. in the morning? He wets his bed. And so that morning, Judy comes down to tell him that breakfast is ready. And she walks into the room, and who does she find? But she finds Billy, shoes on, fully clothed, brown bag packed, sitting on the edge of his bed, bed made. And Judy says, honey, why are you you dressed? Why is your bag packed? And he says, because I wet my bed. And I know I'm going to be punished. And Judy Lexington grabs this little boy. And she gives him another one of those bear hugs, suffocating hugs. And she says to him, oh, honey, we'll just wash the sheets. And Bill tells me a couple weeks ago when he's telling this story, I kid you not, that was the last time I ever wet the bed. Because I had never experienced somebody's love like that. And friends, you have a heavenly father who some of you are packing your bags because you feel like he's going to reject you like your earthly dad has. And that's just not the case. He loves you. And he calls out to you and says, oh, honey, that's okay. We've we've washed the sheets. Because your Savior took your sin. And what in your bed's not even a sin. But your Savior took all of your peccadilloes, your little sins, small or great. He died for them. Come down for breakfast. Friends, if you need to talk about your relationship with your father, um, I want to help you do that. And I want to help you take responsibility for the specific lies that you've believed and perhaps help you grasp some of the truths of the situation. And I want you to find specific truths in Scripture that counter all of the internal falsehoods that you begin to project on God the Father because of your earthly father. And the way to begin to do that is to come down for breakfast. Is to come to the Lord's table and repentance and enjoy knowing that your Father invites you to dine with Him. 
that he is not angry with you, that he loves you with an everlasting, never-ending love. Honor your father and mother. Why? Because your father in heaven loves you so much that his arms are wide open for you to receive his embrace. And run to your heavenly father because he loves you more than you can imagine. Isn't that good news? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we 